Welcome to the Spokesman Review Podcast. I'm reporter Kip Hill coming to you from the Spokesman Review Newsroom in the Review Tower in downtown Spokane. We'll welcome organizers of the new Spokane storytelling series, Pivot, which debuted last month. Then we'll look back at a Sunday story from reporter Chad Sokol published earlier this year investigating how medicine is administered at the Spokane County Jail and the concerns raised by inmates and former staff about an independent contractor overseeing health care at the aging facility. This is episode 80 of the podcast, premiering Tuesday, March 14th. Thanks for tuning in. You can find all episodes of our show on iTunes and Stitcher or stream them free in your browser at spokesman.com slash podcast. We're on Facebook and Twitter, and you can email us at podcast at spokesman.com. Let's get going. The art of live storytelling has been celebrated for two decades in New York City by the nonprofit The Moth, which has its own podcast. That spirit motivated community members here in Spokane to create their own event showcasing the craft called Pivot. New Beginnings was held in the Cracker Building downtown last month, and you may have heard some of the storytellers on Spokane Public Radio's bookshelf program over the past several weeks. Joining me now are organizer Melissa Huggins, executive director of Spokane Arts, and Eric Woodard, who are two of Pivot's organizers. So thanks for joining me here, guys. Appreciate that. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So let's let's start with that. Just, I mean, where did this, obviously we have this, this, um, sort of uh, prototype out there with the moth. But, I mean, where, where specifically did the idea come from here in Spokane? Uh, well, I'm on the board of Spark Central, and it's a community arts organization, mostly for kids but also does adult stuff. And Rick Eichstadt is also on the board, and we kept talking about how much we love the moth. And Rick had gone to Anchorage, and he had seen um, a storytelling uh, event where they sold out a place that was about the size of the bank and he said Mm. wow i'm just so energized and we kept talking about it and spark kept saying well we're really full and so it we it was at least a year until finally we just said let's just try it let's just throw some stuff together and my great talent is not in having anything necessarily good to do (laughs) i just know a lot of good people so uh we kind of uh, convened all of these different people who knew what they were doing and had organizational skills. Melissa, for sure, has that in spades. So uh, we just got some good people on board and set a date and um, got some really good community partners. Uh, Terrain donated everything for the night. Um, they donated the rent, space rental mm-hmm. and the, uh, the rental of the uh, uh, audio system and all that. So it it was kind of crossing the fingers, hoping it came together, kind of didn't know what we were doing and then the night came about and it was great we had about 200 people there standing room only and it was a lot of fun anything to add to that yeah yeah (laughs) sort of a nice rundown of it yeah exactly um yeah i think one of the things that uh i was sort of brought in after this group of community members had been sort of like tossing this idea around for a while and it's kind of a um you know it's a it's a a large group of community members. People are from all different backgrounds. Um, uh, there's a grants administrator for Spokane Arts who's part of this group. There's doctors and lawyers and teachers and professors. Um, so it was a it was a really fun group to step into and just try to help say how do we make this happen and let's make it happen really soon. So it it was a great event. Um, when you're looking for people to to tell these stories, I mean, are you looking for when you're getting people involved in that kind of stuff, are you looking for sort of natural storytellers? I mean, what kind of folks are you looking for? Yeah, they're on stage. We talked about this. Um, so 
For this first formal edition of Pivot, we recruited some storytellers. And uh, our model was one of these community members who is uh, who helped organize the event. She does this every year at her as her birthday party. She invites wow. all of her friends and colleagues and, and family together. And the only rule is that everybody has to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So everyone from little kids to, um, you know, to as as old as uh, as are present. So everybody's telling stories. It's a huge range of stories and everybody just sort of has a blast. So when we were talking about putting together this event, um, essentially we wanted to recruit people who could tell a great story, um, had some stage presence, had the, you know, sort of, uh, awareness of the crowd and timing and, and just how to tell a great narrative. Well, part of it, too, is two of our community members are professors at GU. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them runs a storytelling. Well, I think they both do storytelling to some degree. And I had worked with them. I teach at Lewis and Clark High School, and they had come into my class and worked with my students. So they've been doing the storytelling thing for years, and I think they also had some people kind of in the hopper through GU that they said, because they run their own, gosh, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, what's I it can't called remember either. Oh. It's a student series. Right. So essentially they are these two Gonzaga professors, Josh and Joe, are curious creating this uh, student storytelling series. Wow. And so at the same time as you know running this this fun series for students, they're working with the students to teach them how to have stage presence and teach them, you know, which points in their story might be the most interesting or which mm. things to emphasize or de-emphasize. And so the week before this when they had gathered some people, we had just kind of said who are great storytellers, we recruited them and then we had a rehearsal um, the week before and they kind of said uh, here's some parts, here, emphasize this, maybe add this. And so they were really instrumental in getting the stories sort of ready to be told, and then they were just perfect the night of. We, we have this, we had a, a bunch of writers on during the summer on the podcast, and it, it, it strikes me that the, the prompt can often be sort of really important in something like this. New beginnings, where did that sort of germinate from, and what did you, I mean, what kind of stories did people tell for folks that may not have, of have listened or, or, or heard the stories or attended or maybe interested in what, what was told. Yeah, Eric actually is the one who came up with the uh, New Beginnings theme, so I'll let you speak to that. Well, it just, I mean, that's what it was. We mm-hmm. were hoping to start something new, and we thought, uh, since we're starting and nobody knows who we are, we thought, let's just think of a time where... Um, you, it, things change from point A to point B. And that was actually why we came up with the idea for Pivot, too. Mm-hmm. I think all great stories have that moment where it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be about. Right. It's not a straight trajectory. There's a moment where the story turns, and maybe it goes from comedy to tragedy or vice versa. So the idea is, I mean, those two things kind of went together for... A, 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 we thought it would be a rich way for somebody to say, what's my entry into what story I can tell? And so Pivot, New Beginnings, where, where did your story change, and, and how did it create something new? Mm-hmm. So with some examples of what, what you heard that night? Yeah, I mean, the stories are so great. We would we would encourage everyone to go listen to them because I feel like my summaries of them can't do them justice. <laughs> sure, There's no way. Um, but uh, so, for example, one of the stories, Sean Vestal told this incredible story about um, essentially how this experience in childhood um, in which he was sort of manipulated by an authority figure into betraying a friend and how that experience has shaped his entire outlook and who he is as a person. Um, another another storyteller told a story about um, how she decided to leave for grad school or, or 
decided to go to grad school um, because of essentially a poem that she read uh, that reminded her of the death of her father and then this series of coincidences um, sort of led her to this realization uh, that she wanted to go to grad school. Um, yeah, there, it was kind of, you know, all kinds of stories, and, birth stories, right. death stories. And, and what was interesting is some of the stories were clearly just that person. It, this couldn't have happened to anybody else. But Sam Ligon's story, this it was about the trepidation you have of being a new parent. Mm-hmm. And he was worried, am I going to love this child enough? And mm-hmm. it was it was also a very comical birth story. It took, I mean, seemed like it took a week <laughs> for this thing to happen. So it was yeah. funny, but at the same time, it was just the fear that I think any new parent would have about a child. So, uh, I mean, it really was, we couldn't have, if we would have planned it any better, we couldn't have had a better range of stories, from humorous to sad, from um, everyday to completely unique. So you talk about that, that gamut of, of stories, and, and one of the things I think that, that um, I love about stories and why I sort of went into what I do is 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 the storytelling is an empathetic exercise. It's it's not just going and being entertained by this. It's recognizing that mm-hmm. um, other people have the same experiences that I do, regardless of who they are or any or we have the same types of emotions. I mean, is that really the the goal here? Is it is it mostly entertainment? Is it mostly you know some sort of uh, social thing? I mean, have you really had time to think about what? what it means in the community yet, too, since you've only had one. But I know that's a deep question to throw well, okay, Let the me start this one, sure. because the reason I started this is because I wanted to go to one. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I, I've listened to the Moth. I've been to one uh, Moth event in New York, and I love it. And I thought, if we had it here, I would go to it. And I kept biding my time waiting for somebody else to start it, and nobody did. So I said, well, let's get some people together and see if we can make it happen. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I One of the things, I agree with Eric in the, in the sense that we thought that this would be a fun, exciting, great thing for Spokane. Mm-hmm. And also we knew that um, as we continue to do these events and as more and more storytellers um, participate, we'll ju- we're going to continue to get perspectives that we hadn't even considered. You know, people will tell stories that will just continue to blow us away in their depth and complexity and and surprise us and delight us. Um, But as, sort of just as a person, uh, I love stories. You know, we all love stories, like Mm -hmm. you said, Mm -hmm. but I think um, storytelling is part of everything that we do, which sounds so cheesy, but I think that particularly in this political climate, there are just so many things where we have to be telling stories. We have mm-hmm. to showcase stories of uh, perspectives that people may not be aware of. We mm-hmm. need to um, just continue to uh, tell narratives, and that's how people understand things. A lot mm-hmm. of times, you know, big picture uh, can be complicated and overwhelming, and uh, storytelling is sort of this really, like you said, deep, empathetic way where. Uh, someone else's story can resonate with us in a way that is completely unexpected. And let me just add to that. At the event, it was really great to see how the people who were there watching, I mean, as these stories were being told, it was such a 
powerful moment in the room, just the silence and the attention. And you could see people crying at times and everybody was crying together and people were laughing together. So it really was a, almost a, a perfect moment in that room. It was a great way to start because those stories were resonating so powerfully. Even just kind of the mundane first relationship story to stories of having to abandon somebody you consider your child. Uh, so it just to, it, you, we saw the power of story very powerfully in that room. What what are the I guess I should have probably started with this. It always comes up to me that I should have started with a question like midway through the interview. What are the what are the rules here? Are there are there rules to how the stories are told and and timing? What I mean, what what rules did you lay out for these these participants? Uh, yeah, so we didn't lay out a ton of rules for them. We established the theme. Uh, we established uh, a time length. We we decided that um, in order to tell a really good thoughtful story. Um, that that length, the sort of sweet spot for the length would be about eight to ten minutes. Mm -hmm. So we gave each storyteller that amount of time um, and gave them some suggestions. Again, from Josh and Joe's experience running the Gonzaga series, they were able to give some pointers. You know, don't over-explain things. Mm -hmm. um, make sure you know what the ending of your story is. Make sure you know where you're going to land. Mm -hmm. um, so they gave them some general pointers, but uh, we didn't give them a ton of rules. No, the, that ending part you were talking about, know the last line, because a lot of people were worried, how am I going to tell a story in eight minutes that goes somewhere that has mm -hmm. cohesion and one of the things that they always told people is know your first and last line mm -hmm. have that memorized um, and I think like Sean Vestal's first line was we had a plan and you think okay this is you know so it, it, I mean we, we set the stage and then he has that last line so it, it wasn't necessarily rules it was a lot more guidelines and about eight minutes was about the only rule per se mm -hmm. and these had to be true stories too it's not any, nobody's Spinning a yarn. So yes, exactly. We did not have fact checkers there. Though. Oh, okay, okay. Well, <laughs> Can I, I'll, be sure. I'll raise my hand here for that. Uh, it's sort of my one of my jobs. So, what did you what did you learn from this this first experience? I mean, obviously, this is the hope is that this this continues. I mean, what did you learn, and what are, is anything going to change in the next one, or, or what do you think? That's a great question. I mean, uh, you know. So we've talked about doing these sort of uh, formal events a few times a year. So, you know, we want to have a few big, uh, big events every year. I don't know that there's a whole lot that we want to change. Um, I think in terms of storytellers, you know, we want to be reaching all kinds of different communities. We want to be recruiting people from all different areas of Spokane and different backgrounds. And um, so we'll, I think we'll sort of continually be you know, trying to find great new storytellers. Um, beyond that, I think, you know, the format was great. Um, Eric and Morgan Merrim from KHQ were the MCs, and they were tremendous. Um, they did a really great job of, you know, sort of providing a little breath and a little pause between each story so that everyone could sort of, like, sit with that story for a moment right. before the, we launch into someone else's, you know, completely, tonally different story. Um, so I think format-wise, it was pretty strong. Mm -hmm. But logistically, that was an event that took a, a lot of planning. So the idea is now to kind of follow the moth model, mm -hmm. to um, have some kind of open mic nights, to see what storytellers are out there, uh, have people bring their own stories. These are going to be a little bit briefer. Well, mind if I just go into talking about our next event? Please, please okay. do. That's so, so on important. April Fool's Day at Spark Central, we are having, it's called the Story Slam. It's just an open mic night. Anybody can come and uh, tell their story. Wine will be served. 
uh, April 1st at 7 o'clock. And the idea is these are not eight-minute stories because we, don't, we can't curate these. So the mm -hmm. idea is we don't know what we're going to get. Uh, but we encourage people to come with their story. The, uh, because it's April 1st, the theme is fool or fools, um, noun or verb, whether you are a fool or whether you've been fooled. Uh, and just to see what storytellers are out there. So the idea is shorter stories, a little bit looser, night, a little bit more. We don't know what we're going to get. And m one of my goals, obviously I think it'll be fun, but one of my goals too is to say, who's a really great storyteller that maybe we can take that story and move it to the next one that, that we plan and that is bigger. And I mean, I think part of the reason it was so successful too is we recruited so many interesting storytellers from town who... Um, kind of had people who wanted to hear their story, mm -hmm. uh, some people with name recognition, some people from GU. And so having a roster of people, you say, I want to come see these people, that may have been why so many people came to last one, this open mic. You don't know who you're going to get. Mm -hmm. So um, the idea is I, I would like to eventually, and I don't know if we haven't really talked about this, but I would like to have one of those a month, an open mic night, different places maybe, maybe the same place, and just say, let's get people out telling stories. And I already have people who just the friends that I've talked to say, I'm going to bring a story and we're just going to put them in a hat, pull out some names and say, okay, you're next. Come on up. Yeah. And just from people who either attended the first one or heard about the first one and were sad that they couldn't make it, we have had quite a few people like, how can I participate? Like, I have a, I have a great story I want to tell. How do I do that? Um, so I think that'll be really fun to see in the way that the poetry slam community in Spokane has been so grassroots and so, you know, they're having multiple events every month and tons of people showing up and it's this really supportive community. And I think that these slams could be, uh, similar to that as well. Cool. And so the next formal event, I know we chatted a little bit before we came on mic, that's still up in the air at this point, but there is going to be another one. Any mm -hmm. idea on the theme yet or anything on that? Or is it still close to the chest there? <laughs> I don't know if we've decided the theme decided for the next okay. one. But yeah, we are. We definitely are uh, planning the next event. We're looking at May or June. We're trying to figure out what works for all of our organizers. But we'll try to get the word out soon. And we'll probably hold it at Terrain again. They were mm -hmm. very gracious, and the space was perfect. Couldn't have been better. Uh, they were very supportive. So at quarterly is kind of what we're thinking. Every three mm -hmm. months or so, we'd like to keep doing it. Very cool. So you, you had mentioned go and listen to the stories. Is there a way to do that if people aren't, don't do the, the or maybe it's on public radio. I, don't, I probably should have looked it up before we started. <laughs> no, no worries. Yeah, yeah it is actually. Uh, you can stream the stories from Spokane Public Radio's site, um, I forget the exact website URL, but essentially if you look for the bookshelf program, mm -hmm. uh, you can either stream or download. Um, Vern Wyndham broke it up into three episodes, so there's a two or three storytellers per episode, and you can listen to them at your leisure. Cool, cool. And you guys have social media accounts that people can follow and may break the news of where the next one's going to be. What are those? And, and yeah. How people uh, on Facebook, it is Pivot Spokane. On Twitter, we are at Pivot Spokane. On Instagram, we are at Pivot Spokane. Uh, and we do have a website, which is um, pivotspokane.com. That's called branding. Right there. <laughs> there you go. You guys knew what you were doing. Well, uh, Eric and uh, Melissa, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, is there anything else we should we should talk about with the event? or? 
That's, that's my always my catch-all journalism I get, question. Anybody who's listening, if you have an interesting story about a time you were made a fool of or you made somebody else a fool or you felt foolish or whatever, uh, come on in. And even if you decide not to tell your story at the last minute, it should be a really fun night. Spark Central, April 1st, 7 o'clock. Right. Yeah, and even if you don't want to tell a story, show up, listen right. to some stories, maybe gear yourself up uh, to be ready to tell one next time. Right. All right. We'll make sure all that information is in the show notes for people that, that are listening if they're interested in coming out. Thanks again, you guys, for coming in and uh, being guests. Really yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Joseph, the Portland, Oregon folk trio whose single White Flag that you're hearing now ratcheted them to fame with a performance on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon last summer, takes the stage of The Knitting Factory on Wednesday, March 15th. The Klosner sisters released I'm Alone, No You're Not, their second studio album, in August, and it quickly climbed to the top of the Billboard Heat Seekers chart, spotlighting new artists. Window, the solo project of Spokane-based alternative country artist Carly Ingersoll, will open. Tickets are $18.50 and can be purchased through Tickets West. And joining me to read events this week is reporter Chad Sokol. Take it away, Chad. Hi, Kib. Emma, Howard Zinn's dramatization of the life of Russian political thinker and feminist Emma Goldman, will be performed this weekend at Stage Left. Goldman spent most of the first part of the 20th century advocating birth control and opposing compulsory military service, including the draft during World War I. You may know Zinn from his highly influential American history work titled, appropriately, A People's History of the United States. Performances are scheduled for Fridays and Saturdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday at 2 p.m. through March 19th. Tickets are $10 through Stage Left's box office. Author Amy Shively Hawk's stepfather was gunned down over Vietnam and spent six years in the Viet Cong's notorious POW camp, the Hanoi Hilton. Using her own journal entries and audio recordings, Hawk, whose mother eventually reunited with James Hawk after he returned from Vietnam, tells the story of her stepfather's detention and his work to assist other POWs after his return to America in the recently released book, Six Years in the Hanoi Hilton, An Extraordinary Story of Courage and Survival in Vietnam. Hawk will read from her book and sign copies at the downtown Antis at 7 p.m. on Saturday the 18th. The event is free. The Bighorn Outdoor Adventure Show is in its 57th year and comes to the Spokane County Fair and Expo Center this weekend, March 16th to the 19th, sponsored by the Inland Northwest Wildlife Council. The show brings together guides, outfitters, and nonprofits interested in preserving and enjoying the outdoor lifestyle. Tickets are $10 for adults, $8 for seniors and students, and children six or under get in for free. And though they may not be as well known as the other punk and grunge bands of the era, the Phoenix, Arizona band The Meat Puppets will play the Bartlett on Monday the 20th. Perhaps best known as the backers for several tracks on Nirvana's MTV Unplugged album, The Meat Puppets have influenced Kurt Cobain's band, Soundgarden, and Pavement. The Modern Era opens the show, which starts at 8 p.m. Tickets are $17 in advance and $20 the day of the show and can be purchased through the Bartlett's box office. For more on these and other events, visit Spokane7.com. Last month, reporter Chad Sokol published a look at the medical treatment offered at the aging and overcrowded Spokane jail. Chad followed the story of inmate Brian Monin, who spent more than a month with a broken elbow that jail staff did not treat. Monin's story isn't the only troubling tale of treatment rendered at the facility, as Chad soon found out. Here to discuss reporting that story and what's next is reporter Chad Sokol, who stays from our previous segment on events. So thanks for staying in the room with me, Chad. It it took a lot of effort to get here. I I imagine so. I imagine so. So 
this was a, a, a two-part piece, and it was published, I think, at the beginning of February, if I'm remembering correctly now, or somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. But you started reporting this many months ago, right? I mean, when, when, did you, when did this all start? It was actually back in June, and it was... Um, actually, if I remember correctly, I think the idea originated with you. It was uh, as I was kind of taking on the the county government beat, and you were transitioning into city government. And uh, uh, you mentioned that that not everyone was thrilled about the the county's new contract with NAFCare Inc., which is an Alabama company that specializes in correctional health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, I, I started looking into it. Um, I went through the nurses' union initially and uh, got several folks to speak with me. And I think back in June, we uh, published uh, maybe a, a very short 500-word story about it, um, just indicating that there may have been some problems. And um, from there, I thought, you know, there are so many hundreds of inmates uh, in Spokane County's custody on any given day. Um, if their care is uh, not quite where it should be, then that's something people ought to know about. And that kind of started me on this months-long journey trying to figure out just what's going on there. Mm-hmm. How did you find this this particular inmate? Did they reach out to you? Did you look through records? What was – how did that – I'm talking about Brian, who's – featured prominently at the beginning of the, the story that you wrote. Yeah, Brian's mom actually reached out to me. Uh, she sent me an email in November, I believe, and she lives in Texas, and she had been talking to him. Um, he was complaining to her that uh, he had this badly broken elbow, um, and I, you know, doctors told me it, it absolutely needed to be treated, um, but she came to me with her initial concerns and then from there I went about trying to verify that with, with documents and medical mm-hmm. records and, and actually uh, attending his surgery consultation when that finally, finally happened. Mm-hmm. And ha- he, you, you go through this in the story. I assume most people have read this now, but what, how did he, how did he get injured for those that, that may be like, now I want to sort of read this story. Mm-hmm. He, he broke his elbow. Yeah. And- he, he uh, had been uh, caught in a, a stolen pickup truck, mm-hmm. and he tried to outrun uh, the police officer who spotted him. Uh, he was in the truck with uh, an- another guy, and uh, he took off running down the street. He told me it was just a fit of adrenaline, and uh, so he was he was running, and he got tackled into the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't he doesn't dispute that. that that's he does how not it, dispute that. Yeah. He yeah. said it was a mistake, and it was like it was immediate. Did he know like right when it happened that? Clearly, there was something going on with his elbow that needed to be handled, or uh, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said the pain started to set in um, on his way to the hospital. Uh, he was actually um, he also uh, struggles with uh, heroin addiction, and uh, on that day he uh, was going through some withdrawals, and those actually also intensified when he was when he was in the jail. Um, but it didn't take long for the pain in the elbow to set in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you you had the opportunity with this particular story to follow an individual person through some of their their healthcare stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think viewer or viewers, listeners would probably be interested to know sort of the challenges that we have as reporters trying to get to medical information. Obviously, there are rules and laws and stuff that you can't 
violate when it comes to that kind of privacy mm-hmm. stuff. So how did you go about getting that type of access for this story? Well, a lot of it uh, revolved around establishing some kind of rapport with, with Brian and getting him to trust me, um, you know, so that he would be willing to share that information. Um, uh, as far as getting, getting medical records that, you know, requires a patient to, um, authorize the healthcare provider, or in this case, the jail and the healthcare provider to disclose, uh, confidential medical information to me. Um, and so required a lot of running around, um, asking him for, for his permission and, and running it back to the jail. And, um, you know, because the healthcare is provided, uh, via a contract with the county, there were, were some added complications there and a little bit of confusion, but in the end it, uh, was eventually just, just delivered and had it all in front of me. And, um, it was all pretty unequivocal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we kind of ended with, I guess, going back here, we ended with him being admitted to jail again. Uh, for those that, that didn't get a chance to see this story, what transpired after he was, he was in the cell? Was he letting folks know that he mm-hmm. needed this medical attention? Yeah. <clears throat> um, he, uh, tells me that, uh, he was complaining about his elbow from the time he was admitted. He mm-hmm. uh, had been taken to the hospital just before he was booked into the jail. Mm-hmm. And the doctor at Deaconess North, um, up, up there on the north, in the north part of town, um, had recommended that he see a surgeon. Of course, he had to go to jail before that. Mm-hmm. So um, he had some documentation from, from the hospital when he was booked into jail. He tells me he was complaining verbally. Um, the first written complaint came uh, within six or seven days, uh, and he began writing uh, what are called kites. They're mm-hmm. uh, written requests for treatment. It's a one-page form. Um, you don't get a, get a lot of space to expound on on, on your problems, but mm-hmm. uh, you're supposed to be able to submit this form and have your complaint attended to somewhat quickly. You mm-hmm. know, usually it's a, just a triage kind of, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he submitted, I believe it was eight or nine of these total during his 40 day stint. So we're talking jail. like one every few days. He's mm-hmm. sending this kite to this yeah. jail supervisor saying, I need, I need treatment. Yeah. And this is why. And, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. and, and he was consistent. Uh, every time he said, I uh, need painkillers for this. And I need uh, to see a specialist mm-hmm. um, who who could treat this. Um, they did not give him painkillers because of his his drug problem, right? Um, but they also did not take him to a surgery consultation mm-hmm. the whole time he was in there. Mm-hmm. And from your from looking at this, I mean, that's the thing that kind of stood out to me when I was sort of covering this. Is obviously your you know jail staff are, are dealing with a population for uh, uh, for various reasons who have drug issues and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Do, do you get the sense from your reporting or just what you've heard from other people that that there's uh, in the jail there's there's not much propensity to to hand out medication, particularly pain relievers for that specific reason because people you know seem to be addicts and maybe wanting medicine when they what's perceived as they don't need it. There is, uh, 
the added challenge in, in a jail setting <coughs> is that uh, the inmates obviously have to be there. They're, right. they're not they're not patients who are who are there on of their own accord, um, and they're also a very um, they're a group that faces plenty of, of specific challenges, um, and there are concerns that inmates will try to manipulate nurses, manipulate corrections officers in order to source some drugs, and I'm sure that does happen to, to a certain extent. Um, however, I don't know how often it happens where uh, an inmate comes in with uh, an injury that's pretty obvious, especially mm -hmm. if uh, to anyone who has access to the x-rays. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a lot of the treatment delays revolve around uh, the flow of paperwork um, and and certainly some of those more intangible problems just having to do with how much you, you trust the, the inmates or mm -hmm. in this case, the patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, you, 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 I think you characterized it pretty well of, of this is an issue that has been going on for a long time. I know we've talked just, just you and me in the newsroom about multiple lawsuits have been filed about, mm -hmm. about medical care. Um, how does that play in with, you know, you've got the human side of this story, which I think you captured perfectly, which is all of these people who, for whatever reason, have medical challenges and kind of are confronted with a, with a system that is either inclined maybe not to trust them for whatever reason or, or it's, it's not expedient for them to, to provide the, the treatment that, that's being asked for. Uh, so you got sort of an imperfect mix of systems where you, these people have committed crimes or are suspected of committing crimes and have to spend their time but at the same time, you have an obligation to provide them basic human necessities. The, the political side of this is, is, is one that um, I think you could get into sort of a – maybe a, a, a pit sort of mining it. But I mean you, – so you've got this story of, the, of this guy and then you go and get additional stories from um, uh, other uh, inmates who have had similar issues. How do you then bring in the political piece and sort of what's the, what's the conflict there, I guess? Well, uh, I think something that, that's really interesting about what, what panned out over the past year or so in Spokane County is that as the county privatized it, the jail's medical care, um, there was this very uh, controversial phasing out of the county-employed medical staff. Mm -hmm. um, what's happened in other counties, uh, I think Pierce County is one example uh, where this Alabama company, NAFCARE, came in. Uh, it happened all at once. Mm -hmm. All of the nurses who had worked on the county's payroll at the Pierce County Jail left, and uh, a medical contractor came in. Mm -hmm. um, later, that shifted over to NAFCARE. Um, in this case, the original agreement was that um, something like 13 county nurses would work at the same time as NAFCARE nurses. Mm -hmm. um, NAFCARE would have the final say on, on treatment issues and they would be the bosses. They would have the, you know, the command staff for, for the medical unit. You see a potential issue there yeah. already, right? To have public and private employees mm -hmm. doing the same job side by side is, uh, sounds kind of like a recipe for disaster. And, and that's what many 
people told me it was. It mm-hmm. was. Uh, it, it didn't work. Um, so you've had people in the private sector or uh, working for NAFCARE who had to sign off on decisions that people who had worked there for a long period of time mm-hmm. and were accepting jobs, uh, I would assume they're being paid less than what the private company was being paid. So th- all those dynamics kind of in play. Is that is that I, right? Or? I, I haven't pinned that down. I, okay. I wasn't able to get yeah, um, I mean, salary comparable salary information for, right. for each, each employee, but um, I am sure there were there were some significant differences. Um, a, a big factor, though, was that uh, they just didn't agree on um, how certain certain problems, especially common problems like diabetes, would be treated. Mm-hmm. Um, one instance, and I, I think I reported this, was that uh, they said NAFCARE uses a uh, cheaper form of insulin that doesn't last as long, and the county nurses say that's not as effective and mm-hmm. it's not uh, not up to par. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's true is obviously not a judgment call I can make. Um, but what what the jail administrators will tell you is uh, they are not doctors. They need to put their faith in doctors mm-hmm. or, or medical professionals. Um, and so they really have uh, given a lot of their, they've put a lot of faith in NAFCARE and just, they, they just hope that the company will fulfill its duties. Mm-hmm. Um so it, it's an interesting dynamic and, uh, that I don't think is explored enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did you, I mean, before looking at this, had you done much reporting on jails or <laughs> medical treatment in jails, social services offered in jails? Like, that's that's got to be a different world, right? I mean, that you're coming into and yeah, I I, I, I came into it uh, pretty blind. Um, all I knew was what I had read from from other jails other other prisons mm-hmm. um, but this specific issue is very complicated and not some I, I didn't know what I was getting into mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and once you had decided that this was something you wanted to explore getting access to inmates I mean how, how was how was that would you have to do you know like we see on the the five o'clock news a sit down in the in the sort of supervised area I mean is that a lot of where that reporting done was done or yeah, that was that was fairly easy. It was just a call to the jail and uh, tell them I'm with the newspaper, and if they want to want to speak with me, then um, it's a it's a yes or a no. And yeah. so I they they gave me permission, and I went in and and did several interviews in the jail. I interviewed uh, uh, one man uh, who was actually later incarcerated at the Kootenai County Jail, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, with Brian, I was able to follow him around, follow him around uh, quite a bit after he was released. Okay, yeah. and is he? Where is he now? Is he? Is he in custody again? I can't remember. You may have. He said. he he was in custody uh, briefly. Uh, my understanding is that he failed to check in with a parole officer. Right, right. Um, and he, that. he, I believe he's been rele- released again, um, and I don't know that he has a permanent address. Okay. Do do you know the last time you spoke to him, I mean, how was his medical issues? Is his elbow healing? What's his elbow's healing? Uh, there was quite a bit of concern, um, 
before he had the surgery that there would be uh, too much scar tissue mm-hmm. uh, built up between the, the the chunk of bone that had broken off and, and the other piece. Um, what happened was uh, when the tip of his his elbow broke off, uh, it was connected to his uh, tricep muscle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so his tricep had actually... Um, uh, tightened up and, and pulled the bone away from the joint yeah. a little bit. And so he said it was extremely painful and there uh-huh. was some concern that it wouldn't be uh, the easiest surgery. Um, luckily it was. Uh-huh. Um, and I understand that he has a metal plate holding his elbow together and it is healing just fine. So okay. Good. Well, let's talk about the aftermath of this story then. I mean, it comes out, there's a lot of questions about in there, I think, that are about, you know, what what are the benefits of using this particular company? Are there policies that could be changed? Any of those? I mean, those are sort of inherent questions when you read this story. Um, what kind of response did you get from people that were included in the story, people who make decisions based on things that may have been in the story? What, what sort of happened since then, I guess? Um, there were plenty of negative responses, um, especially on, on social media, just from, from readers. Um, I I think something I would like to make very clear is that, um, people who go to jail, uh, are either being punished or they are just waiting to determine whether or not they need to be punished. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're innocent until proven guilty. Um, most people in jail are there before trial mm-hmm. <clears throat> and a separate point is that for those who are convicted, punishment is being in jail mm-hmm. punishment is not um, suffering the pain of a broken elbow mm-hmm. um, cool and, and unusual type of thing yeah I mean, and, and that's that's how how the every court has Mm-hmm. justified, you know, saying that jurisdictions need to provide adequate medical care. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, that's considered cruel and unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, that's, that's one thing I'd like to make clear. And that's my mindset going into working on a story like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did get, uh, quite a few responses from people who, uh, claimed they had undergone, Claim they had had similar experiences in the mm-hmm. jail or, or knew someone who had. Um, I got plenty of people who were sympathetic. And uh, what I thought was interesting was that the response from um, the folks at the jail was uh, they, they didn't have much of a response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably means it was pretty accurate then. <laughs> I, as far as I know, there, it's, it's a totally... Totally accurate story. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And so you had mentioned before we came on, there was, and I, I think this is mentioned in your story, there's uh, some sort of audit going on at the jail. What's what's up with that and where are we at with that now? So knowing that there there were some challenges and, and knowing that some policies needed to uh, at least be looked at, um, jail officials or, or the county has uh, recruited uh, Dr. Mark Stern. He's a uh, correctional health care expert. Um, he used to be the the chief medical director for uh, Washington State's prison system mm-hmm. uh, with the the Department of Corrections, and uh, they've recruited him to uh, come in and review charts, charts, look at NAFCARE's uh, policies and procedures, 
and uh, determine what, if anything, needs to be changed. Um, I know he has uh, seen the jail. He's he's come in and done that review, and I'm waiting to hear back about what he's determined from mm-hmm. that. Is is that going to be a public sort of document because it involves potentially some some sensitive health information? Do you know yet if that's going to? I I imagine there will be some kind of um, some kind of publicly available uh, report or mm-hmm. at least. Um, some holistic findings he'll be able to relay to me. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't spoken with him since uh, since he came in and did that review, but hoping to hear back about that soon. All right. Well, that's a follow we'll look for. Uh, again, this was uh, uh, a really, really well-researched, uh, well-reported, and well-written piece. I was uh, working on the, the desk on the, the Saturday before it came out, and I was reading it. I was really proud that you did that and that it's, it's a very, uh, I think, important piece of of journalism that that uh, illustrates to people, you know, something as you said that um, you know you may not think about, and the, some of the responses might be because people just you know haven't experienced uh, that um, that having a relative or a friend or something incarcerated there, which you know is is an unfortunate thing, but. Um, I, I would like to think that <laughs> journalism is an exercise in, in humanizing us all, and, and I think that that story definitely uh, reached that that threshold, and I, I appreciate having it. So Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if folks want to follow you and your future work, uh, where do they go on social media and all that good stuff? I'm on Twitter at SRChadSokol. All right. Uh, thanks so much for coming in, Chad, and for reading copy. And if you'll stick around, you can do news for us too. Oh, cool. Now let's leave you, as we always do, with five recent stories from the Inland Northwest you'll want to know about. Spokane County Sheriff's Deputy Travis Purcell has filed a defamation lawsuit against State Representative Matt Shea and local resident Scott McClay following a podcast from the Washington lawmaker alleging the deputy provided the weapon used to commit a triple murder targeting a Spokane firefighter, Nina Culver reported. The lawsuit is sure to continue the ongoing conflict between Shea and Spokane County Sheriff Ozzy Knezovich. The murder weapon in the case against Roy Murray was never found. Off-leash dogs are prompting concerns from neighbors near the Dishman Hill Conservation Area because of aggressive behavior and piles of poop following the snowy winter season, Rich Landers reported. Nancy Hill, head of Scraps, told Landers that Spokane is underserved by off-leash areas for dogs, with only three such parks approved in Spokane County, prompting some to flout the law in areas where leashes are required. A small Christian school in Post Falls is drawing skepticism for its apparent recruitment of athletically gifted students from Nigeria, Uganda, and Rwanda, Tom Klaus reported. Genesis Prep, a 1A school, is not under investigation for its practices attracting students, but opponents say current rules allow the private school to put together teams that public schools can't compete with. The Spokane City Council has signed off on a $1.75 million loan to developer Ron Wells and his partners renovating the old Ridpath Hotel, which has been shuttered since 2008. Wells has been in the process of acquiring the Ridpath for years following bankruptcy proceedings and complications following involvement by convicted fraudster Greg Jeffries. When completed, Wells said the project will add 206 housing units, most of them affordable for low- and moderate-income tenants, to the downtown core. Public school teachers in Idaho will no longer have to teach lessons focused on climate change following an action by lawmakers in Boise last week, Betsy Russell and Eli Frankovich reported. Some Republicans pushed back on the notion the vote was taken to expunge climate change from the curriculum, saying standards need to be rewritten on the topic. 
but Frankovich reported that science teachers in Coeur d'Alene are concerned about the implications of the new rules. For more on these and other stories, visit Spokesman.com. And that will do it for the Spokesman Review Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You can find all episodes of our show on iTunes and Stitcher, or stream them free in your browser at Spokesman.com slash podcast. They premiere Tuesdays, and they're always free. We're also on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Spokane underscore podcast, or visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Spokane podcast. You can also email the show directly, podcast at spokesman.com. We'll be back in another couple weeks with more local news and events, and hopefully another guest or two. For now, I'm Kip Hill. And I'm Chad Sokol. Saying stay near nature, near the news, Spokane. We'll see you next time.